let me start out by telling a short story from my childhood. I was probably age four. We were living in Minneapolis, Minnesota. My dad was working for Polaris Snowmobile Company. And one of his colleagues had this idea that he would dress up as Santa Claus and come to several of the kids' houses of his, of his friends and, and surprise the children. Well, we were shocked. My sister was two. As I said, I was four. Santa's here. I mean, we thought Santa lived at the mall because you know, that's where you had your picture taken with him. But wow, he's at our door right now. So, Santa, come in, come in. Make yourself comfortable. Is there anything that we can get you? And we were trying to be as hospitable as, as we could. And I should have offered him milk and cookies. Or I should have offered him a, a carrot for Rudolph. Or, you know, that's the type of typical things that a four-year-old would offer. Instead, I offered him a beer. <laughs> and when you go back and watch the, the old family video, you can hear this audible gasp off camera as, as my mom is just mortified by... My family grew up in a religious tradition where you didn't have alcohol. And if your fridge was stocked, you certainly didn't talk about it if you did. And I think every parent has several moments like that when your children will say something that it, it's inappropriate. Just completely, they, they don't know the rules of propriety. And they don't know what needs to be kept private and what does not. I mean, it seems like every child is pushing the limits on what private information or private parts that they want to or can expose to other people. I think you probably may see where I'm going with this. Today is a really strange sermon topic, if you see the title there, Circumcision. Um, why why is circumcision the sign of the covenant? When you read through the Bible, you discover that it's actually very modest when it talks about human genitalia. So no sooner do Adam and Eve fall in the garden and they're, they're found to be naked, but God immediately comes and clothes their nakedness. If you, if you look at any 16th century piece of Renaissance art, you will always see that there is a fig leaf uh, perfectly located, so to speak, to, to cover the nakedness because, because we don't talk about those things. Later in the book of Genesis, when Noah is passed out drunk, naked in his tent, one of his sons comes and, and, and covers his nakedness. The Bible hardly ever talks about about nudity, except for the 150 times that it talks about circumcision. That's about how many times you find it, it, the word circumcised or uncircumcised, circumcision, 150 times. We're going to discover this morning, why is that? What does it mean? Why does it matter for, for us today? Seventeen one. when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram 
fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall you be called exalted father, which is Abram or Abram, but your name shall be father of a vast multitude, Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. Kings shall come from you, and I will, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. He goes on, And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. We'll stop there. This encounter with God and Abraham and the conversations that would have ensued thereafter had to make for very awkward conversation. Um, you can almost imagine Abraham gathering together his rather large family household at this point. While he only had the one biological son, nevertheless, his extended family would have numbered in the thousands. Um, I have an announcement to make. Good news. God has decided to enter into covenant with all of you. Bad news. (laughs) It is not through a handshake. (laughs) Why this? I got to thinking this week. I understand the desire or the need to have a permanent, visible covenant sign. But there are ways that you could get that that would be far less painful and intrusive. Uh, God could have made the sign of his covenant be a tattoo. You you may even know like Coptic Christians will have tattooed on their wrist the, the sign of the Coptic cross. That would be permanent and that would be visible. Why can't he do that? Or he could also do some type of piercing be it a nose ring or an earring, or just some type of something that would be out there that was readily seen by everyone. Because circumcision, the assumption being that circumcision is is kind of a hidden sign. Um, Actually, it was not. You, You think about a male in an ancient society like that. He would be seen by his his fellow men in the nude with a fair bit of regularity. 
And especially as Greco-Romans culture develops, I mean, if you were to uh, compete as an athlete, all of your athletic competitions were done in the buff. You go to the gymnasium, and, and there you, that, is, that was always done in the nude. Later on, one of the developments of society is the public bath system becomes more and more prominent in small towns. You would go to the public baths, not merely in order to, for purposes of hygiene, but it was in the public baths that you would relax and socialize and do a lot of your business activities. They're disrobed. Like today, we, we make a lot, of, a lot of business deals or cut on the golf course. Well, back then, most of them were cut in the public baths. And it got to the point that in Jewish history, there are actually historical records of Jewish men who opt to try and reverse their circumcision. If you can, you probably shouldn't imagine, imagine with that, but they would try to undergo a very crude surgical procedure that would reverse their circumcision because it really was a visible sign. Were the Jews the first people group to circumcise themselves? No. Circumcision was commonly practiced among the people of the ancient Near East, but it was commonly practiced as a rite of puberty. It was an initiatory rite into manhood. So the way that you would would know and be able to say that, that you were man enough, the way it seems like all throughout history, that male organ has always been a sign of, of power and, and dominion. And the way uh, in the ancient cultures that one would show that you really were man enough was, was demonstrated at one circumcision at, at puberty. What happens with Judaism is that God takes an existing custom and practice and he pours into it new meaning and, and significance. So what is... What is the meaning and significance of circumcision with, with Abraham? Here's what I think it means. Um, it means that your fruitfulness, it's really the essence of the covenant with Abraham, is that you're going to be fruitful beyond your wildest dreams. Childless 75-year-old man, almost childless 99-year-old man, you are going to have physical and spiritual progeny more numerous than the stars in the heavens. You're going to be so fabulously fruitful, but it is not going to be according to the flesh. You think about it. Literally, circumcision is the cutting away of the flesh. You are going to inherit all of these promises, but it is not going to be according to the flesh, according to to your strength and to your power. I, the, the flesh in the Bible is often kind of a code language for using our bodies under the power of sin for our own selfish purposes. And what God does is he cuts away the flesh. He takes what would be the, the organ of life, what they believed was, you know, the male organ, the source and origin of all of life, and he cuts away the flesh. And it's his way of saying that my promise is going to be fulfilled, not according to the flesh, but according to my spirit. And that's what I think it's enshrined 
in a, in a male's body. I can imagine a conversation between a Jewish father and his son going something like this. Dad, I was down at the I was down swimming with a bunch of boys from the village at the local watering hole. And they started making fun of me. And they started calling me names and they said something about mutilated. Whatever, I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound good. And they were laughing at me. And they were saying that that I was a weak a weak man. Um, can you imagine a conversation like that happening? It's not that hard. Because if you came from a uncircumcised people group, I, a circumcised man looks like a weak man. That's not a sign of strength. That's a sign of impotence. You've just been cut off. Well, well son, um, it's actually a sign. It is a sign of of our weakness, but it is, it's a sign of God's strength. We are in covenant with God. We will inherit the great and precious promises that are made by God to our forefather, Abraham. All of those things of our, our fruitfulness, our security, our life in the future, all of that is going to be ours. But son, it's not going to be according to the flesh. We will be only fruitful by the power of the promise, by the power of his grace, by the power of the Spirit. So that's what, as far as I'm concerned, I think that is the number one thing that God was, was saying in the circumcision of, of, of these people. Second part of it is, second part of the covenant is this promise that I will be your God. And that's a bit redundant, actually, because if you remember, the word covenant means a relationship between two people. Uh, a covenant with God would be a relationship with God full of blessings and full of obligations for, for both parties. I will be your God. Well, that's another way of saying I'm in covenant. I'm in covenant with you, Abraham, and I'm going to be in covenant with your, your eight-day-old boy, uh, child, too. See, what was striking about Israel's circumcision is the only one, according to archaeologists, that, that practice infant circumcision. Um, why, would you, why would you put this sign of, I will be your God, um, on, on a child who, who can't, I can't even, he can't even think, he can't even talk? Why would you do that? Let me ask you this question. Is it possible to have a relationship with somebody when you don't even know that you have a relationship with them? Is it possible for somebody to be part of your life before you ever have a memory of them being part of your life? That is what Yahweh was saying to to these children. I'm a part of your life just like a father or a mother is part of your life before you ever even realize that you had a father or a mother. I'm that to you. I am in your life before you even know that you have a life. That's why you're marked like this. I think that's also what is being enshrined in in his body. I will be your God before you even knew that there was a God or you ever knew that you needed a God. It's a very, I don't know, it's a very powerful thought that it's enshrined in the body. Every time a male would look down 
he would be reminded that the promises are not according to the flesh and the relationship is entirely of God's own initiative. And he would take that message. I mean, where else do men go with their male organs? They take them to the marriage bed. And so every time he went and he and his wife made love to one another, there the promise was being uh, remembered again that we are fruitful not because of my male virility and my strength and because I'm man enough, but all of the promises that have been made to us are fulfilled um, by the power of God's Spirit. So that's what I think is happening. Um, I received a call the other day from a, a very close friend of mine. He, he, he said, Brad, I bought the ring. I bought the engagement ring on the internet. And I was like, you can do that? <laughs> you would trust the internet to... So yeah, I bought the... It's amazing ring, white gold band with a one carat diamond. The diamond has a WS2 clarity rating. And I was like, stop right there. It, you should not know those things. Like Any guy who knows what WS2 clarity rating means <laughs> needs, to, needs to go for a walk. <laughs> he, he needs to go to the golf course. Clear his mind. WS2 clear. So, $5,000. He said, it was, I, got it, I got to steal $5,000. I was thinking, when I bought Aaron's ring for her when I was 21, it cost $600. And I thought that was, I was, you know, spending my life savings then. $5,000. And it got me to thinking, how strange it is that we spend so much on an engagement ring when engagements can be broken. Sometimes engagements really should be broken. The engagement ring is not the sign of the wedding covenant. Isn't it strange that the, the, the actual sign of the wedding covenant with this ring, I thee wed in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, usually is a ring that is worth like a fraction of the engagement rings. But it seems like we've got it backwards because the wedding ring is the, the, the ring of permanence, the ring of that, that uh, shows the permanence of, of the covenant. And I guess I think that our wedding rings, if you're going to spend a lot, spend it on that one. Um, but really, what my hope in this sermon is that I would help unpack for you the multi-layers of beauty in the, the ring or the sign that the, the, uh, God gave to Abraham. Um, I believe that God is a poet. Shelton made this comment in leading service in the leading worship in the first service. He said, "It's when you're married to an artist, you end up going to museums a lot. You end up getting drugged to museums a lot. And whenever they're in an art museum, he and Karen, he'll be standing there looking at a painting and be like, "That's nice. Let's go. You know, <laughs> let's go to the next one. I think I've, I've seen all of it. And of course, Karen, being the artist that she is, she's like." Oh, I see this, and I see this. And she sees all these multi-layers of meaning. God is a poet, artist, lover, father, king. And when he gives to us signs, they're not flat signs. 
They're not a Hallmark wedding card with, that has two words on it, love me, on the, on the bottom that you've, that you've signed. But there's layers of depth. And when God brings to his beloved people uh, roses, they're not just ordinary run-of-the-mill roses. They, they have different layers of meaning. Maybe it's actually a rose painting. Maybe it's a painting and a rose sculpture. But it seems like when God operates, he always does it on these multiple levels of meaning and and that's what I've been trying to touch on with you. So the Jewish son, he's talking again to the Jewish father. Dad, so circumcision, it represents not according to the flesh, according to the spirit. That's, that's a beautiful picture. And it represents the initia- initiation of God being a relationship with me. Before I even remember um, a me, does, there, does it point to anything else, Dad? There's a voice off camera over here that, that says, yes. And it just so happens to be the Apostle Paul. Because in Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, Abraham's circumcision is actually a sign of his being justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 4, verse 11. Circumcision is a sign and seal of Abraham's righteousness by faith. Abraham, you're going to come into an intimate personal relationship with me, and it is... it is never going to be a works performance religion that we're engaged in. It, you, you, you're made right with me. You're brought into covenant with me simply by faith and trusting, uh, and trusting my promises. Well, why do you put that sign, the sign of righteousness by faith, on an eight-day-old child who isn't able to even exercise faith? I think... I'm not sure that's the case. I, I think one day we may discover that the infant brain actually is capable of much higher level cognitive functions than that we give them credit for. Um, and that it may actually be possible for our infant children to believe and exercise faith. But let's just assume that they can't exercise faith. Why do they get the righteous by faith sign before faith? Because God wants to enshrine on them the gospel from the very beginning. So if that father was being faithful, a faithful father, he would say to his son, you you know what that, you know what that means down there? That means that we're justified by faith and and not by works. Um, You are made right with God by trusting God and his promises. And every day for the rest of your 70 or 80 years of life, every time you look down, I want you to remember that it's all about trusting the promises of God. So I hope that then is helpful to you. It helps you see why Christians have made the connection between infant circumcision and infant baptism because they they have the, the argument goes like this, that just as the Lord's Supper is the, the Passover is the counterpoint to the Lord's Supper. It's the covenant meal of both covenants. So too, uh, baptism is the initiatory rite into, in the covenant, like circumcision was in the old covenant. Um, you don't have to believe that or, or agree with that. The majority of Christians have, though. Like if we were to sample American Protestant Christianity, it's likely that the majority of Christians were baptized as believers. But if you were to sample global Christianity 
or Christianity, historic Christianity over the last 2,000 years, you would find that the vast majority of those Christians were actually baptized as infants. And the reason they did that is because they saw so many connections between the spiritual significance of the one and the spiritual significance of, of the other. I, I did not want the sermon to turn into like a, a baptism food fight because we're really good in, our, in Christian circles about turning theology into food fights. What I have discovered is that people are generally persuaded on this topic, one direction or another, largely based on the orientation of the way that they think. So if you're a, a concrete thinker who likes particulars, who you know, just show me the verse that says, thou shalt baptize thy children. Give me, is that verse 34 there? You know, if you're a concrete thinker, then typically you're, you're much more likely to believe, be a believer's Baptist. But if you're a narrative thinker, if you're a person who sees, who gets caught up more in the narrative arc of the scriptures, then, then you're probably going to be on the infant baptism side. And St. Augustine was definitely a narrative thinker. He's, he asked this fascinating question. Why is it that the boys were baptized on the eighth day? And he, I think he gives two answers. One, because that was the, the earliest, safest time that, that, that the procedure could be performed. You wouldn't do it. 24 hours out of the womb. Um, somebody even suggested to me after the first service that the eighth day, it, it was basically a safe procedure at that point. But, but Augustine goes a little further and he says, I think it was on the eighth day because the eighth day is the day of resurrection. Oh, well, the Jewish week starts on Saturday and it's not safe to do it on Sunday. So Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Sunday. Oh, he was saying it took place on Resurrection Sunday. That was like, that's, that's how he thought. Um, and you may think that's the strangest interpretation of eight-day eight old circumcision I have ever heard, and, and maybe it is. But he saw it as a, finding its counterpoint in baptism. We are baptized into the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. Even if we disagree over infant baptism, um, here's where I want to go with it. We can agree that your baptism is one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given you. Um, their circumcision is one of the greatest gifts that they were ever given. Now, I mean, with every great gift, you can screw it up. You can attribute to it things that are not really there. You could live a totally carnal and pagan life, but say, I'm circumcised, so I should be right with God. Well, no. But if you were if you were thinking about it rightly, then it was one of the greatest gifts God ever gave you. And baptism is, is that same way. When you think about it rightly, it, uh, it, it is so precious. And you know, a failure to be baptized, that's like refusing to open up the biggest and best present under the tree on Christmas morning. Why would you ever want to let that go? Because in, in baptism... He has pledged so much to you in the covenant. Sometimes people will ask us the question, uh, are, are you really saved? And when I'm asked, asked direct questions like that, I don't do very well. I, I go on the defensive and, am I saved? Oh, I'm, uh, 
I think, you know, I, I think I believe the gospel. I think I believe in Jesus, but do you really believe? I think so. You know, I, I get nervous. And um, how do you know? Well, you're supposed to judge a tree by its fruit. I think, I think there's fruit. What you hardly ever hear any of us say is my baptism. I, I believe what God pledged to me in my baptism. To wash away all my sins. To be a God to me before I even knew there was a God. To, to cover me with the Holy Spirit. To, to baptize me into Jesus. To unite my life with Jesus. Um, I heard, why don't you say that? <laughs> um, you know, Martin Luther, he was oftentimes afflicted, greatly afflicted by spiritual and physical temptations. And what he would do at times where he was really low is... He would make the sign of the cross over him and he would yell out, Devil, I am a baptized man. And that was his way of saying, I see what God has pledged to me. I have been baptized into union with Jesus Christ and that is, that's what defines me. Finally, to cl- I want to close with a movie illustration. It was a moderate success in the box office, the 1994 film, When a Man Loves a Woman. Did you ever? It was with Andy Garcia and Meg Ryan. It's a story of um, a beautiful couple. You know, Meg Ryan was, was one of the leading ladies of the 1990s. Some of you don't even know her name. <laughs> but beautiful couple, Two really gorgeous-looking, blonde-haired, uh, six- and four-year-old daughters. Kind of the perfect American couple, but if you know what the, happens in the story, Meg Ryan is, is a totally lost alcoholic. And she gets put into a detox center. The detox center is, is a very rough place. This petite, blonde-haired gal surrounded by all of these Harley biker dudes, you know, in leather and chains. She's totally out of place. Her husband comes to visit her in the detox center, and he's out of place. He walks in in a sport coat, or maybe it was a a suit and tie, I can't remember, and he's a fish out of water. Somehow or another, while they're there, he gets separated from her. And he's with He's by himself among all of the sinners, and they, they, say to, they say to him something like this. They say, hey, man, you know you want to drink, don't you? And he, he's like, um, I'm not an alcoholic. And they say, that's what, that's, you're in denial. <laughs> that's what we all say, you're in denial. He's, no, really, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an alcoholic. I, I'm not a sinner. That's, and he walks into the lobby, and she sees him from across the room, kind of wilting. And she sees how uncomfortable he, he is around these people. She walks up to him, the classic line in the movie. She says, Michael, whatever you think about these people, whatever you think of these people, think of me. Because it fits. Because I am these people. It's a beautiful moment of solidarity, and it is so close to being the gospel. I just wish that she would have reversed it. Michael, whatever you think about me, think about these people. You think I'm beautiful. I'm the love of your life. Well, that fits them. Think about 
them. And that is the message of the gospel. When we are baptized into Christ, when God thinks about you, he thinks about his son. He thinks about the loveliness of his son because your life is joined to his. And, um, and that's the fullness of the covenant in the New Testament. It's our lives joined together with the risen and glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.